Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to our uh, public lecture this evening, our first public lecture from the Iris Murdoch Research Centre for 2024. And I'm delighted uh, that you can be here, but perhaps even more delighted <laughs> to be joined by our visiting professor, Anne Rowe. Um, Anne, I know, is uh, known to uh, many of us in the room, but for those of you who don't know her, uh, she is one of the greatest um, living experts on Murdoch's fiction, um, has written such works as uh, Iris Murdoch and the Visual Arts, Iris Murdoch Literary Life, co-edited Iris Murdoch Living on Paper, Collected Letters, yeah. uh, Sacred Space Beloved City, a work on Murdoch in London, several editing collections of essays, Fair Iris reasons. Murdoch Writers in Their Work series, and has just finished um, co-editing Iris Murdoch's Poetry. So, as you can see, covering the whole gamut of Murdoch's work, um, touching on the theology, the philosophy as well, and, the, uh, the, and Murdoch's theatrical work. So I'm, you know, thrilled that she's here to talk about um, Iris Murdoch, 25 years on um, after her death uh, in 1999, um, and to share not just um, what the developments of the past 25 years, but also um, the direction of travel in terms of uh, the regard for the novels, and indeed um, further research um, that's um, very uh, active at the moment, uh, not just within the research centre, but elsewhere. So, uh, without further ado, I shall pass you over to him. Thank you so much. Thank you, Mike. lovely to see so many of you and so, so many familiar faces. Um, absolutely lovely. Um, I'm not going to give you a, a talk or a lecture. Um, I'm just going to tell you a story, basically. Um, because, can I ask a sensitive question? How many people here are under the age of 30? <laughs> a few. Well, I think if, even if we say that there are a few people here under the age of 50... Um, when you think that it's 25 years since Iris Murdoch died, it just struck me. Miles gave me the remit, you know, can you come and give, do a talk on 25 years since Iris Murdoch died? And I kind of got all this information together, for which I thank Francis, Lucy, Miles, Avril, Justin Brokes, Nora Perkins from the Iris Murdoch um, estate. I had 25 pages of notes. And I thought, well, what do I do with this? So I emailed Miles and said... Um, can you give me something a little bit... What, what, what's the title of my talk? How am I going to focus all this material? So he emailed me back and he said, I've called it Iris Murdoch, 25 years on. I said, great, thank you, Miles. That's a real help. Um, so um, I've still got far too much material here. Um, so I thought I would just do the talk in two parts. The development of Iris Murdoch scholarship... Um, and the influence on other writers and the reputation of um, the Iris Murdoch Society and everything to do with Iris Murdoch over the last 25 years and how that's grown. And then for the second part, look how the books are still relevant and that's been covered so beautifully today. Um, the sorts of things that people are re reviewing and writing about and researching in Iris Murdoch now are so different. Students in my day... Um, you know, we just weren't thinking along those lines. So it's absolutely <laughs> dramatic, the change, and it's hit home greatly to me as I've been sitting there listening to these papers today. It's exciting. There are new ways to sell Iris Murdoch, and that's one of the things I've been talk going to be talking about, is how we sell Iris Murdoch now into the 21st century. Because as Murdoch scholars, I think we need to work a little bit harder, perhaps. It's great we're all here. We're all Murdoch scholars. We all love Iris Murdoch. Uh, but we were with um, Iris Murdoch's agent yesterday, and this came up, Miles, didn't it? How, as Murdoch scholars, can we 
take her out now into the world and get people buying the books. So all that's going to sort of come into it as well. So let's go back then to start my story 25 years on. Um, on the 8th of February um, 1999 at Vale House in Oxford, just a few months short of her 80th birthday, with her husband, the distinguished Wharton Professor of English, by her side, um, Iris Murdoch died and her ne- new death made big news that day. Absolutely huge. Um, it was all over the papers. And such was her stature in British cultural life at the time the announcement on the BBC News that evening took precedence over the death of King Hussein of Jordan. Now, her fame largely stemmed um, from the novels of the 1950s, the 60s and the 70s. The late Baggy Monstered had been less popular uh, at that time. But... The Baileys themselves were big news. The reason why this death was covered so much was this couple, this pair, they were a celebrity couple. They were very much in the papers, not because of Iris Murdoch's uh, notoriety as a novelist, but as a celebrity couple. Now, they used to spend weekends in the company of the upper echelons of the society, as, such as Lord Saatchi, Maurice Saatchi, and his wife, the novelist Josephine Hart who had financed Murdoch's play version of The Black Prince at the Aldwych Theatre in 1989. I'm going to intrude in here and tell you another little story. Avril Horner and I, when we were editing the letters, went to visit Lord Saatchi at his house. It is a mock Tudor mansion uh, in in, um, West Sussex, I believe. And when we walked in with this marble, there, there were maids waiting to greet us on the steps in their little maids' uniforms. Um... And we went into this huge, it's like a big mausoleum to his wife, all marble. And you imagine John and, El- and um, I- Iris walking in with their plastic bags. <laughs> and, their, and you thought, how did she fit in? How did they fit in this bumbling elderly that, you know, you could mistake them for the cleaner and, and her husband? But um, and our, Avril and I just looked at each other and said she was interested in everybody. She was interested in everybody's experience of life and everything was a fodder for the novels, including these friends. But make no mistake, they loved her and she loved him. There was a great fondness there between them. But her friends and all human experience was grist to the mill for her moral psychology. She was avidly interested in their personalities as she was in the motives and behaviour of everyone she met. Audie Bailey tells me the story. Audie Bailey is John Bailey's second wife. Uh, the first time she met Iris, she sat down next to her at the dinner table and, uh, and Iris turned around to her and said, do you believe in God? And that's how it all started. Now, the year prior to Murdoch's death, the couple had been much in the news for reasons quite other than their notoriety, their fame or Iris's work. John Bailey's memoir had hit the press describing Murdoch's descent into Alzheimer's, his fascination for the Teletubbies, details of their sex life, which I don't think there was much going on there anyway, and her physical and mental deterioration. That, now, I remember in particular a review in The Observer by um, Jackie Wulschlager who pointed to the book's uncomfortable ambivalence between devotion and malice. 
And this is what hurt many of us at the time, the idea that there was some kind of malice behind John Bailey's publication of it, some kind of jealousy. Um, I honestly believe that such was Murdoch's understanding of the human psyche and such was her love for her husband. Um, if she had known, which she didn't because she was too far gone by then, she would have forgiven him. I don't know about the rest of us could forgive him for publishing such grotesque details about her mental infirmity and, and too much to go into. So that was a sad, very, very sad background to the death itself. But the obituaries after she died focused on her, more interestingly to us, her legacy to English literature. The finest of her generation lauded her achievements. A.S. Byatt said that she was the most important novelist writing in her time. A.N. Wilson said she spoke to a generation trying to discover its moral sense after the war. Sebastian Falk suggested that the perspective of time would place her magically bewitching but intellectually austere novels at the top of British fiction of the second half of the 20th century. Now, all those critics and, and writers were, were sort of appearing to try and confine her. She wrote great novels, great for the 20th century, but that's it. You know, that's where it all ends. But there were a few others who looked forward to the 21st century, like John Updike predicted universality. The, the questions with which she persistently grapples in her fiction are the ones upon which all fiction depends. Lorna Sage, who was the examiner for my PhD thesis, thought her fiction would ensure because it spans an extraordinary range, which includes high seriousness, that double perspective on the novels that gave you the philosophical part, past the, the psychology of her characters. That's what would save them, she said. Um, and Harold Bloom had confidence that her work would survive because he saw her as a pivotal link in the evolutionary chain of the English novel that went back into the 19th century and forward into the 21st. So in the light of that, I thought, well, okay, what evidence have we got after her death that her influence has extended into the 21st century literature? Oh, no, we can go back yet. Oh, well, never mind. I'm coming to him. I've got something to say about him. Um, in... 2007, I published an essay that explored strong links between Ian McEwan's atonement and the Black Prince. I think it's pretty convincing um, that there's a real dialogue going on there between these, these two writers. McEwan himself is very, very reluctant to acknowledge it. I put this photograph up because I met him at the London Book Fair uh, in March 2019, and he was in such a gracious mood we, he agreed to have photographs taken with my colleagues because we ran a literary festival together. And then I turned around to him and said, we have met before. My name is Anne Rowe and I've written about your work and your, uh, you know, the relationship between the Black Prince and Atonement. He practically ran away. Um, he wasn't pleased. Um, he was not best pleased at all. He didn't want that link being made and he certainly didn't want to discuss it with me. Um, and that was the end of it. Um, other writers, though, were not so shy in acknowledging a debt to Iris Murdoch, um, including those novelists who introduced the new vintage classic series, the centenary. Sophie Hannah 
Sarah Perry, Charlotte Mandelson, Daisy Nod Johnson, they all acknowledge the impact of Iris Murdoch um, on their writing. And there are others, Monica, uh, Monica Alley, Zadie Smith, John Banville, Sarah Waters. So there's a pretty broad range of, of, contempt, you know, of writers in the 21st century who might have a debt uh, to Iris Murdoch. Um, but of course, what distinguishes Murdoch as a part from all these contemporaries and those who came after her, his, her concomitant status as a highly respected and practicing moral philosopher. Um, I thought about giving a brief assessment here of her status as a philosopher on her death, but I think there are probably people here who could do better than I. Um, I certainly, I asked Justin, who I happen to be speaking to, he said, oh, you get back to me, but he hasn't. Um, so I went to his book, um, and what um, Justin says is that Murdoch's philosophical credentials on her death were good. That's one of that prestigious group of females, Anscombe, Midgley and Foote, who were taught by Donald McKinnon. She'd been enthusiastically received into the philosophical world after meeting Sartre in Brussels, which sparked her confidence to return to the philosophical fold. But after her death, suggests Justin, there were always those who suspected that Murdoch was not quite serious or substantial as a philosopher, or not quite professional, and those who perceived her philosophy as the work of a novelist who had once been a philosopher. Uh, rather than the culmination of a sustained professional attention, advancing a large view uh, of areas of moral philosophy. Um, Justin, however, sums up her philosophy as brave, ambitious, independent, and quite opposite to the philosophical fashions of her time. Would that be fair to, to give a sort of, you know, um, some indication of his status as a philosopher on her death? Now, well, the saddest thing of all is to have all these debates um, that were going on at the time were put into the shadow and this about the stature of the fiction and philosophy all became eclipsed by the continued huge media frenzy. You cannot mention the trajectory of Murdoch without mentioning this. It is really, truly sad. Um, after John Bailey's untimely memoir in 1998 came A.N. Wilson's vitriolic, uh, Iris Murdoch as I knew her. The problem is it wasn't confined to Murdoch scholarship. Um, extracts appeared in the Daily Mail under the heading, and this is verbatim, a hellish kind of love, gay affairs, sexual secrets, and why Iris Murdoch called her husband princess. David Morgan, a former student of the RCA, wrote in Love and Rage, recounting his unconventional sexually charged friendship that came very close to public scandal. Um, Richard Eyre's film Iris, this is 2001, starring Kate Winslet. Enchantingly looking like the young Iris and Judy Dench as the old Iris Murdoch with Alzheimer's. There was nothing, almost nothing in this film about his status as a writer or a philosopher. And this is why Murdoch's scholarship took against it. People would stop me in the street, isn't it wonderful? Have you seen the film? It's a wonderful film. No, I mean, 
she, there's one cutting of her, isn't there? She's st- sort of talking. She sounds like some 1960s guru talking about love. And that's it. There is nothing in this film about those 26 novels or her status as a philosopher. So we not, no, we were not, we were not very pleased with it at all. Um, Iris Murdoch, A Life, Peter Conradi's biography, 2001. Peter attempted to give a sensitive and honest account of her life that paid tribute to her intellectual seriousness um, and literary achievements. And Peter <coughs> anguished about how much of her private life it was wise to reveal. And Francis wrote to me and said he involved Peter, uh, Philippa Foote and, count- and took counsel from Philippa. How much is it wise, you know? Um, he decided, they decided on truthfulness, that they would tell it as it was. The result, again, was huge notoriety in the tabloid press. Her personal life was sensationalised and she was labelled as promiscuous. Now, the epithet in is only last Saturday, on the 10th of February, and the word was used in James Marriott's article in The Times, when he declared that her high principles were married to both sexual promiscuity and sexual ambiguity. The word promiscuous, I looked this up, implies more than its literal meaning. It refers to one with many sexual partners, but it comes with the implication of indiscrimination, that people will indiscriminately sleep with anyone. And indiscriminate in her sexual partners, Iris Murdoch was not. I'm not saying there were not many of them, but I am going to mediate that a little bit too, because when we published her private letters in Living on Paper in 2015, it did, these letters did suggest a plethora of romantic engagements, certainly. Um, But the process of editing suggested that many of these relationships were not fully consummated. They were in her head, very much so. Um, The voice in the letters are contrived. These sexually charged epistolary relationships and the voice in the letters echoes many of those of her female characters. We would say, oh, you know, there's Hartley. Hartley's written that letter. Or, you know, Lizzie Shearer, Lizzie Shearer. I mean, her voice comes through in the letters. So she deliberately inflamed her feelings, solicited deeply personal information that fed into the psychological acuity of her characters in her letters. Now, this ventriloquism was understandably missed by critics. Why should they pick that up? Um, But her reputation was besmirched again. And forgive me for reading this, but I have a deep and abiding hatred for this man. And I I remember the morning this appeared in in the Times. Miles Francis and I were in a hotel in Oxford. Um, I was giving a paper at the Ashmolean uh, about the letters. And this is what appeared in the Times, in the review of the letters. In her prime, Iris Murdoch was a nymphomaniac. Had she come from the working class, she would have been a candidate for compulsory sterilization. From the moment she left school and arrived at university in 1938, she felt obliged to sleep with every man she met. Mr. Lewis should have noted a letter on page 32 of Living on Paper, in which to her Oxford friend, Frank Thompson, who was in the secret operations executive um, in 
Belgium, I believe, or Bulgaria at the time, Murdoch writes, I should have to tell you I've parted with my virginity. She was 23 years old. Um, I really do feel this is something that needs to get out there, you know? Um, the impact of Frank Thompson's execution by firing squad in Bulgaria at the age of 24 lasted to the end of her life. She loved him deeply. So regarding her sexuality, in her later letters, she confessed a preference for what she called a kind of diffused eroticism. She practiced this idea with, even I think with Bridget Brophy, I have real um, concerns that, you know, that the, the relationship between them that they think, we think happened didn't quite, wasn't what it seemed. So these relationships would be sexually charged but the encounters fell short of full consummation. What mattered in all such of these conjured experiences were the authenticity of the psychology that was to be invested in her characters. She said repeatedly, um, a moral philosophy must be inhabited. This is exhibited no better than in the letters to Rowley Cochrane, um, an American with whom she corresponded right at the end of her life. She never even met Rowley Cochrane, which is once very briefly. And it's a kind of love affair that she has with him. She's an elderly lady. She wants to conjure up that emotion to feed it into her characters uh, when she was way too old to experience it herself. There was a lot of this going on throughout her life that I think has been misinterpreted um, by critics, by lots of, of people who've dabbled in Iris Murdoch's biography in, in her life. So alongside this public drubbing, Serious scholars of literature and philosophy got on with the work of Murdoch scholarship and the framework of the current global interest in her work was established. Uh, the Murdoch Society, there is Murdoch Society, was inaugurated, I think, in the 1980s uh, with, by Barbara Heusel and Cheryl Bovey, and along with it, the associated newsletter. So Murdoch scholarship, while all this was going on in the press, Murdoch scholarship was in the process of really gaining ground globally now by this time. But from the 1980s, trouble was brewing for Iris Murdoch uh, in academia. The radical change in the way that academics approach literary text was one with which Murdoch's philosophy and writing was particularly out of joint. Theorists of language had now abandoned discussion of ana and analysis of moral issues during the years of high theory. Um, this is Derrida and deconstructionist theory. And the idea of literature having an ethical dimension was dismissed as old fashions. Now, as universities adopted a more rigorously theoretic approach to literary texts, Murdoch's ideas about literature should be written and read became outmoded. Her novels became to be viewed with suspicion or even derision. Um, and not only her novels, but also, I think, her brand of moral philosophy. Now then, luckily... For all of us here, really, I think, Peter Conradi, Iris Murdoch's biographer, was emeritus professor at Kingston, uh, and Avril Horner, who was co-edited co um, the letters, had taken his place. Now, I had been a student of Peter's and was teaching at Kingston at this time. And then the um, library, Iris Murdoch's 1,000 books from her personal library in Oxford came up for sale. And Avril decided, we, we were at dinner, Peter, Avril and I one evening, and she said, they shall come to Kingston. We will get them. And Anne, will, <laughs> you will do it. <laughs> um, 
And, you know, um, the £120,000 needed, I, I can tell you many stories about how that money was raised um, from, the, from the Iris Murdoch Society, from uh, appearances on the press. It was this time that the press um, that picked up on this story about these books came to our aid. It really helped, because not only did it get publicity that gave us money, um, I went to my computer one morning after I'd been on the BBC PM programme, a lady from Oxford sent me an email saying, Dr Rowe, is it only £30,000 short you are? I'd said, we need the last £30,000. It will be in your bank account by lunchtime. Um, it was marvellous. I mean, we had great, um, you know, uh, not only money, but people like um, Bill Alexander, the theatre director, happened to be reading it in the Times about the, the acquisition of the Iris Murdoch archives, and his wife said to him, darling, have you not got under the bed that um, play script that Iris Murdoch gave you of the C the Sea? Oh, yes, darling, I think I do, he said. He rang me up and said, I've got this. I would love it to be performed. It resulted in a performance of Iris Murdoch's play at the Rose Theatre in Kingston. So it was huge, and it, it was a roller coaster. It got a lot more interest in Iris Murdoch, I think. Um, so much so that the Iris Murdoch archives, where we have all these holdings of the play scripts, the letters, the books, over 400 researchers, so Dana informs me, visited in the past year. That is way more than any other visitors to any other archives combined. 400. And I must mention here, Jane Riddell, Katie Jales and Dana Miller, who are, are, have been our archivists. Now, the moving of the intellectual core of Murdoch studies from Kingston to Chichester, and yours truly, needs, I think, to be recorded. Um, I think we are the only people who know the stories behind all this, and I think, you know, it needs to go down uh, in posterity. Um, this happened because um, the particular brand of literary and philosophical interest that underpinned the success of the Centre for Iris Murdoch Studies was out of joint with a new Centre for Modern European Philosophy that was established at Kingston. So Kingston University formally withdrew its support, not only for the Centre for Iris Murdoch Studies, but for the exclusive teaching of Iris Murdoch's novels on my Iris Murdoch special study. And I have someone here who can vouch for this, because Lucy was one of my students um, when I was told I could no longer teach a complete study of Iris Murdoch anymore. I had to teach Iris Murdoch and the novel of ideas. So for one year, and one year only, who did we study, Lucy? We did Graham Greene, uh, we did various. No. Anyway, we did this for one year. And then after it had gone down on all the forms and all the marks as Iris Murdoch and the novel of ideas, I thought... Who's going to know? I didn't mind if I got the sack anyway. I was, more, you know. Um, so I, I didn't do it anymore. I just went back to teaching exclusively Irish Murdoch. Didn't tell anybody. Uh, I got away with it for a good few years. Um, but so the Irish Murdoch archives, which I had raised money from many funding bodies as well, um, as well as gifts from the public. They are bound to stay legally at Kingston University because they had been acquired with, with public money. Um, 
so they are bound to remain there. But the intellectual core then found a new home at the University of Chichester. Francis uh, came to me and said, how about Miles Leeson? Do you think that would be a good idea? And since then, clearly, Murdoch scholarship has thrived intellectually. The Iris Murdoch Review, the Murdoch Research Centre, social media. Miles gives online courses at Cambridge. Uh, visual arts, the visual arts in Iris Murdoch. Kevin Petrie uh, has, an, has had an exhibition in the archives in 2023. Uh, and I went online. I mean, I, I could give you loads. Louis Graves opened an exhibition entitled The Bell at Cromwell Place, which featured paintings accompanied by a text by Bridget Lowe, Associate Professor of Sculpture at the Slade. I, I could go on. So that side of Murdoch scholarship is thriving intellectually, um, globally. Um, I assumed that all these initiatives simply must be generating book sales. Miles and I yesterday spent the morning with um, Nora Perkins, who heads up the Iris Murdoch estate. And we discussed this, and we said to uh, Nora, you know, how, how are the books doing? The answer is not well. Um, actual information is difficult to find about how well the books are um, you know, selling, but Audi Bailey, who I spoke to, I said, how are the royalties doing? Not well. But... She did last week receive £27 in royalties from Romania and £250 from South Korea. So, <laughs> so somebody's buying them. Um, Nora is hoping that Vintage might rejacket what she calls their uninspiring recent editions. Those are the ones that were the six. Um, Francis, I think you like those flowery... Nora hates them, I hate them. It's misleading. You, if people are going to be thoroughly disappointed when they pick up those books, they look like chiclet. And they pick up an Iris Murdoch novel. And I think if we don't do something about that, then nothing much is going to change. So um, Lucy has spotted um, about a dozen copies of Iris Murdoch in Hatchards and Piccadilly. Uh, and on a more encouraging note... Um, Audio editions of most of Murdoch's books will be published, Nora said, over the next couple of years, though she has no detail yet who, who's going to undertake the project. That is the end of part one. Okay, that's where we are um, with our Iris Murdoch scholarship now. So what about these novels then? Um, we talked yesterday about we, we and I, I include everybody in this room, as scholars or fans of Iris Murdoch's novels. How can we sell these novels more widely to the public. A review by Kevin Power in, um, this was in the Times, oh, this was The Guardian um, last week, describes, um, this is Howard Jacobson's latest novel, as a Hampstead adultery novel that explores the extremes of sexual obsession, by which he means a novel about professionals sleeping with people who aren't their spouses. Iris Murdoch wrote several of the best, he said. See, among others, 1961's uh, A Severed Head. Now, I think this is precisely the kind of limiting association that should be challenged by all of us. Um, OK. <laughs> um, so I thought what I'd think about, and so many of you who've given papers this afternoon have given clear indications about where Murdoch's scholarship is going and how the interpretation of the novels is moving completely away from 
the moral psychology, and there's no reason why this can't be upheld in certain ways. But we've been there, we've done that. We've talked about the moral psychology, the sexual obsessions, uh, and the interpersonal relationships that go on in the text. And I think that the novels have much more to offer the 21st century than that. And that's been proven, I think, today. Um, James Marriott's article... Again, who read this? And, and Miles assures me that he loves Iris Murdoch's novels. <laughs> um, this was the Times, 10th of February. He apparently fell out of love with Iris Murdoch and no longer reads her novels he, after adoring her as a teenager, which is perhaps why he has forgotten that Dora is not Dorothea, uh, a character in the bell, and it's Julian, not Julia, who appears in The Black Prince. She wrote too much, he said, and there are too many Julians and Hillary's. How many Julians and Hillary's are there? There's Julian in The Black Prince. Who can think of another Julian? Is there another Julian? There's only one. There's Julian. Julian. Julian in Time of the Angels, because he's dead. <laughs> <laughs> a Hillary? We've got Hillary Bird. Any, I can't think of any more Hillary's. It's so irritating. I think one of us, we really need to write a riposte to this and, and publish it in the Times. Um, and he suggests that the encomia seem rather wan. The encomia. I looked it up. Um, otherwise, other, in other, another way of saying that, it would be those who praise her work are pale and uninteresting. How dare he? There's not a pale and interesting person in this room tonight. Um, so he said, Murdoch lacks the core of dedicated cultists who will tend the sacred flame and has to be content with the occasional polite attention of critics whose true enthusiasms lie elsewhere. Really? Really? So it's up to us. It's up to us all as Murdoch scholars. We, as Murdoch critics, have to ask seriously what Murdoch's novels have to offer contemporary readers 25 years on and how we can newly promote them. Even Marriott believes there's a strong case for revivication. The novels are titillating, readable, and with a virtuous but untaxing atmosphere. <laughs> Everything he loved is still there, he says. Uh, the novels no longer come to life, but he is still half hoping that someone will write the essay that will charge all the civil servants, the debates about Plato and complicated love affairs with new electricity. Because he would quite like to believe in it all again. How patronising is that? <laughs> I thought I might, you know, let's make a start. I think we've made a big start here today, really. I mean, everything everyone said. I mean, these, what you've all been doing and all you've been talking about is bringing these novels into contemporary debate and into the 21st century. Um, so I just would like to just add a little bit, uh, my own half-penneth, as Francis calls it, into that. The Research Centre itself boasts an increasingly successful cohort of doctoral students, which has been demonstrated today, investigating a divert, diverse range of research that would have been never considered by my students in my day because I would never have you know, taken them down this route. Um, Lucy's wonderful... Um, landmark thesis, Wild Iris, um, Iris Murdoch's environmental imagination is the first eco-critical study of Murdoch's work that sources not only her novels but Murdoch's newly discovered poetry. The landscape in Murdoch's novels 
Olton argues, conveys an agency all of its own, and she expands Murdoch scholarship into an important new area um, and garners attention in an age of heightened concern for the condition of the natural world. This is what we need. And you're publishing your thesis, I think, Lucy, quite short soon. You hope to. I hope to. <laughs> <laughs> A done deal. Maria uh, is looking at explorations of deracination and exile. How more fitting with what's going on in the news it's that more fitting now than it, than it was absolutely the really yes yes than when you started to write about yes. it yeah. so that needs to get out there as well so um, and the neurodiversity that we talked about today um, all now be unidentified uh, in Murdoch's novels and exciting now we need but we need as Murdoch scholars to get this out there somehow. We can write to the TLS, we can write to the Times, we can write to the Guardian uh, and, you know, just let everybody know what we're doing. Uh, we also need to argue that the novels can survive because they're shapeshifters and that their meaning manifest, manifestly adapts itself to contemporary changes in society. Maybe kaleidoscopic, Francis made this point earlier, uh, would be a better description because as they're looked at from more personal perspectives... Um, and generations of students would say, how can she so, know so much about me? So different aspects of the narrative that are very personal to you as an individual will shift into the foreground when you read the novel 10 years. I've often said you can um, read an Iris Murdoch um, and, you know, later in your life, you can read the, an Iris Murdoch and it's the same novel, but you see different things about it. It's a different novel. As you read it, as you, your life moves into different areas. So different aspects shift into the foreground while others, once seemingly urgent issues that you thought were really urgent when you were 30, are not so urgent while you're 70. So I emphasise to audiences and to students that she did not want the philosophy to get into the novels. And I would always introduce them as gripping, compulsive, compelling reading. And so they are. But I think we spoke about this yesterday as well. We mustn't be so afraid now as Murdoch's scholars to acknowledge them as philosophical novels. She was a philosophical novelist. The philosophy does get into the novels. Let's just try and sell that in ways that we can set them up as challenging, interesting, getting your teeth into something intellectual. There's lots of people out there. I think I personally, you know, when I've given lectures, I've always said, oh, yes, she was a renowned philosopher, but, you know, she always said it doesn't get into the novels. Well, it does. So let's, you know, let's get on with it. Um, so as society becomes more varied and more varied nuances in human psychology, sexuality and behaviour patterns become more openly acknowledged, out of the dark corners, characters and character traits that were once unnoticed and consequently unremarked can be identified and discuss to encourage wise and practical advice on how they should be acknowledged, accepted and understood alongside the philosophical aspect of novice, which deserves equal attention. So many of Murdoch's characters are stuck in a century to which they are out of step and would be happier and more fulfilled living more openly and freely in society today than the milieu to which she confines them in the novels. Gertrude Oppenshaw in Nuns and Soldiers, newly married to Tim Reed, the most seemingly unsuitable husband imaginable for this woman, longs for a future where love sus sus defies societal expectations. 
Why should love be classified and constrained and denied and destroyed all the time? People can love each other honestly and truthfully, she says, in all sorts of ways. Anyone can love anyone in an Iris Murdoch novel. Men can love men. Women can love women. Old men can passionately love young girls, even their granddaughters. Young girls can love ageing men. And these feelings are not superficial or prurient. They can be life-enhancing, but they can also be dangerous, even deadly. New freedoms will come at a cost, and she will not shy away from giving those costs. In The Philosopher's Pupil, the eponymous philosopher Rosanov's illicit love for his granddaughter, Hattie, cost him his life. Murdoch understood all too well many forms of deviant emotions, and she will not sweep such inclinations under any bourgeois carpet. So it's time that we dug a few of those out as well. In the decades since Murdoch's death, these new kaleidoscopic shifts in reading the novels that come, for example, from the societal acceptance of homosexuality and a greater awareness of gender fluidity. Now, The Bell, we're all well aware of this, published in 1958 when homosexuality was still illegal, famously includes Michael Mead, a closet homosexual as its central character, whose denial of his authentic self leads to pederasty and a suicide. The narrator explains wisely through the self-questioning of the intelligent 18-year-old Toby Gash, who had been inappropriately kissed by Michael, that he was a long way from the sophistication of understanding that we each, all of us, participate um, in both sexes. Murdoch herself was to reveal in a letter in 1967 her confusion about her own sexuality, I am probably not at all normal. I think I'm sexually rather odd, which is a male homosexual in female guise. Not sure I quite understand what she means by that, but it might account for why all six of her first-person narrators are male. I've always said it was because she wanted to put herself into the character with which she was unfamiliar so that she could see the world afresh through eyes other than her own. And I've always said that. Now, I'm not sure that that's right at all. She wrote from the perspective in which she did see the world more comfortably, in which she felt more at home uh, in the male persona. Um, So it's fairly evident from the novels where it is queer male relations, she says, which tend to carry the most weight from the unconscious. Since this information came into the public domain, other characters emerge as less rigidly gender-defined than one might have originally assumed. Some of you will remember Emma, Emmanuel Scarlett Taylor, in The Philosopher's Pupil. His homosexuality is openly acknowledged by the narrator, but his sexuality is, if you read the book closely, is much more complex than that. He dresses in drag for a garden party wearing a blonde wig and a smart silky um, silky coloured mustard dress. He's he's nicked it from the wardrobe. He's staying in um, the house, isn't he? And And he takes it from the wardrobe. He goes into the garden, they're having a riotous party, and he makes a sexual approach to his friend Top McCaffrey, who rebuffs him, and he lays his under a ginkgo tree. There must be something symbolic there, where he is discovered by the gypsy girl Pearl Scotney, with whom he's had or is going to have a brief sexual encounter. When she recognises him, she's shocked. Oh, it's horrible, dressing up like that. It's vulgar. You look awful. It's all awful. It's hateful. I can't understand it. Take off that wig. 
Now, this shock is mitigated in the novel by Murdoch's loving, detailed representation of Emma's inner life, which emphatically ameliorates any such negativity, although she most certainly does not deify this character. But any of you who know the book and know that character, he is a lovely, lovely, gentle, kind man. Murdoch understood well the emotion she ascribes to this character. Her long relationship with Bridget Brophy sometimes involved conflicting sexual urges and cross-dressing. Many more such complex, conflicted characters are probably still concealed within the novels, hiding in plain sight. When Rachel Cusk's essay suggesting that Iris Murdoch is not a woman's writer was published in the Iris Murdoch Review in 2022, it illustrated how far Murdoch's work had not sat easily with feminist readers and theorists. Confronted by a group of indignant students while teaching under the net in 1999, I found myself having to defend, to defend myself and the novel against such concerns. So I went back and revisited it afresh. The essay has just been published, I think, in um, Iris Murdoch and the something imagination. Yes. One of the things I found, for those of you who are not familiar with um, my essay, a small army of maidens in the margins, I've called them, that defied the feminine stereotypes that many of her central female characters often ironically subscribe to, illustrates that there, in very early the 1950s, Strong, intelligent women were depicted in Iris Murdoch's novels, living happily, independently and successfully in the world. The chain-smoking shop owner, Mrs Tinkham, the young woman that Jake's bumps to on the stairs of the mine theatre, a cheerful-looking girl in blue jeans, who turns out to be the company's accountant. Uh, and then the sassy nurses who Jake, joke with Jake and his fractured self-esteem is meant after a mental breakdown by their gentleness and kindliness towards him. Um, I didn't notice those female characters there when I read the book and I'd written about it. Um, I had to go back to defend that argument in order to find them there. You get taken along by the general, the main narrative, these little background characters, and I'm sure there's dozens more of them hiding there. It remains true that there are many women in the novels who are willingly oppressed by coercive, charismatic men. And these are the women who take central stage in many of the novels. Uh, but if you look closely at the book in The Brotherhood, for example, where Murdoch invites readers not to be so complicit, but observe unstintingly the unpleasantness of such erotic servitude. She constructs a striking Gothic image of moral... I probably missed a few images that I wanted to show you. Um, and I didn't notice this. Oh, there's living on paper. Yes, okay, forgot that. There's the archives <laughs> in all their glory. And there's the annotations on the books. And these are just the novels. I think there's some lovely covers. Why don't? But what's wrong with these covers? I think we, we can sell them. This one is a bit bizarre. Oh, I can't go back. Some of them are bizarre, but. <laughs> I know, but you might you might pick that up rather than the flowery ones. Oh, that, you know. It's my favourite. <laughs> They're quite good, aren't they? That's my my last one. Um, I'm talking. I, I was reading for Lucy's book group. I went back to read the, the book in the Brotherhood again, and you notice things again in the margins. The centre of this story is 
Jean Cambus's erotic servitude to David Cribbin. She leaves her husband, her lovely man, twice for him. And they have that car crash where there is a suicide attempt. I never really quite understood that, but I think I'm getting there now. Um, before she leaves, before Jane Jean Cambus leaves the second time, she just about to go out through the door. She knows that she's doing something very, very dangerous and something very unpleasant. And she pauses for a moment to look into her mirror and she sees a mad, scattered, convulsed face. All the time she packed and dressed and dealt with her face. She was shuddering and trembling, her lower jaw moving compulsively, a faint growling in her throat. It's a werewolf image. It's thoroughly unpleasant. Um, so while Murdoch's deep understanding of the seductive and dangerous thrill of deep, mutual, erotic love can appear morally ambivalent, she refuses here to shy away from the ugly, dangerous side of erotic servitude. I think that suicide pack is its ultimate deadly perversion. When you love somebody that much that you will, or you, are, you don't love someone, you are erotically enslaved to another human being so much that you will be prepared to drive your car head on for that person because he simply told you to do it. Um, so anyway, the self-assigned status of her novels as moral psychology. I'm going on too long, aren't I? Do I need? Yes. <laughs> um, we've talked about that a lot. Um, uh, so I think I might skip that. Um, and I will also skip my bit about neo-theology because we've talked about that today. Um, um, I have a big section on, what's his name? Bernard, Father Bernard Jacobi. Um, in The Philosopher's Pupil. Um, if you were my students now, I would read to you um, a passage from there where he discusses his own brand of neo-theology. He does no longer believe in God, but he also says there must be religion on this planet. Uh, and it's a passage that has puzzled me for years. Nothing else but true religion can save mankind, he says, from the likeness and irredeemable materialism from a technocratic nightmare where determinism becomes true for all except the unimaginably depraved few who are themselves the mystified slaves of the conspiracy of machines. There's an awful lot to unpick uh, in that passage. So I would get you into pairs <laughs> after we'd had a cup of coffee and I would say, um, let's talk about that because I don't know what's going on there. I mean, I think she's saying something deeply important about the dangers of not believing in God um, and the fact that she deeply and profoundly did not but also wanted religion to survive on this planet. Um, so there's so much more to be said and to be brought into contemporary discussions there. Um, and finally, I will finish on this point. Uh, we seem to be moving um, into the realms of prophecy and if she could see deep into this century... Politicians of all persuasions are suggesting that the world is in a great state of danger and instability. Another war of global proportions is feared and particularly harrowing on our TV screens are the images of children enduring the most appalling suffering. Two children appear in Murdoch's final novel, Jackson's Dilemma, a work generally accepted to be marred by the onset of her Alzheimer's 
but these children nonetheless stand as a lucid and meaningful symbol of her deepest fears for the future of mankind and her last shred of hope as she was dying for its future. The first child, long dead, appears in a conversation between Rosalind and Tuan, who reveals how, at the beginning of the Second World War, his Jewish family belatedly attempted to flee the Holocaust by train. Tuan's grandparents, along with his father and his 12-year-old sister, successfully board the train. But the young girl is crying because she had to abandon the family dog. The train is agonisingly delayed and the deserted family home is really close by. The train pulls out, just starts to pull out, but the girl's empathy for the abandoned dog is so great that she suddenly jumps onto the platform and runs. Tuan's father attempts to follow, but his grandfather violently restrains him. The train moves off, slowly speeds up, and looking back, they see the little girl standing on the platform with the dog in her arms. It is an unbearable image. They never saw her, nor ever found a trace of her again. I think of her, I think of them, says Tuan. Millions, tens of millions. How can there be such evil? It must be held up before the world forever. And that, I think, is what Murdoch does here. She beatifies this image of the abandoned child as a damning recognition of the circularity of history and the barbarity that seems inevitably to resurface every few generations. But there is another child in the novel. One appears who has also been touched by death, that of his beloved father. He's Bran, Brandon Arvon, also aged about 12 or 13, and he has much in common with Murdoch herself. Born in Ireland, he feasts on mists. He has had an excellent education at, at a lycée in Paris. He's an intellectually gifted child, passionate about literature and history. He speaks English, French and Italian. He's good at Latin and is learning Greek. He collects and treasures stones. When Mildred Smaldron goes into the Parthenon Freeze, one of Murdoch's favourite places, she spots Bran by the door. He seems to be the ghost of Murdoch herself. And apart from Jackson, who now acknowledges is that he has now come to a place where there is no road, Bran is the last character to appear in the novel. But what is really special about this boy is what emerges is affinity with animals and the empathy between them that Murdoch portrays. Having risen at dawn, Bran creeps to the stables to visit his pony and they look at each other with amazement and with passion and with love. Then he finds the great hunter, Spencer, and reaching up his arms to the horse's neck, stroking his huge face, looking into his beautiful eyes, tears came to Bran as he said his name. And it is, was if he were holding up all the world. That's the second time she uses this image of the child holding up the future of the world on their shoulders. I am so sorry. I am so sorry. The moment pass, passes. This empathy between the, the child and, and the animal that Murdoch beatifies here is an essential human quality that can save mankind. But the moment is fractured. I am sorry, I am so sorry, says Bran. And as he leaves, the horse falls. 
his ankles tangled by thick bindweed. The horse follows as far as he can, but old and tired, bending his elegant legs, he lay down in the long grass. We have the feeling that the horse will die. The bond is broken and the scene is almost unbearably poignant. But the point is, perhaps, how far the brilliant child is humanised by the experience of empathy and unconditional love. Only through empathy we feel the pain of others as if it were our own. Perhaps brand can be read as a symbol of hope in every new generation in whom humanity must place its trust. Children, intelligent, well-taught, empathetic and deeply loved. In the early 1990s, I think it was 1993, Murdoch gave a valedictory speak, speech to just such young, talented students at Kingston University in which he applauded this generation moving off into the next decades of their lives and into the troubled, unfamiliar world of the 21st century. I was sitting there, just behind her, and I remember her warning them then of the dangers of technology and political extremism, and probably more alarming uh, then, well, they are more alarming today than they were then. She ended her speech, as I will now and say to this generation, of young, talented students that I've heard speaking here today. And we who wave you onward, we say the very best of luck. The world needs you to talk about Iris and take it out there. <laughs>